Well, if you would keep your bulletin handy with Philippians 1 in front of you or your Bible as we uh, look at Paul's prayer for the Philippians together. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, We ask that you would, uh, by your spirit, um, open our eyes uh, to behold the wonders of uh, your love for us and the wonders of uh, how that love transforms us into loving people. Um, Would you do that? Would you help us to see Jesus? Um, Would you help? Uh, Help your people to be encouraged by your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, we have been looking at Paul's prayers and trying to distill some of his priorities for praying, uh, especially as he prays for the churches. Um, what What are priorities that we should have in mind as we pray for one another, as we pray for Mountain Fellowship as a body as we pray for the church at large. Um, Last week I I mentioned that the recipients of this letter and these letters from Paul are all in various kinds of situations uh, that could range on the spectrum anywhere from uh, life is falling apart to life is full and wonderful and and everything's going well. Um, Usually though it's a mix of of those two things. There are places in your life where things are falling apart, and there are probably places in your life where things are full and and going well. And so as we receive this word from Paul, we're in that same situation. Um, But what I'm wondering is, again, this week, is is there something that Paul prays for that uh, that we can have whether our life is falling apart or whether it's full and, and wonderful and, and glorious and everything's going the way we want it to. Uh, yes, I think we've seen that Paul would pray for us to grow in faith, hope, and love. And it seems that when you read uh, the letters from the apostles um, to the churches, those are the things they're looking for. Those are the things they're praying for. Uh, for the churches, um, and uh, we we know that at the end of First Corinthians thirteen, which we call the great love chapter, um, that Paul said, "So now, faith, hope, and love abide; these three, but the greatest of these is love." And so uh, this week we'll look at how Paul prays that God's people will love. There, we won't get into it now, but there are places in the other letters that Paul has written and, and the other apostles that that show us that love is actually um, the result of faith. Love is actually the result of hope. And so that's why last week we looked at hope and faith, and this week we now look at this uh, prayer that Paul has uh, that God's people would abound in love. Uh, But before he even gets to that prayer in verse 9, Paul prays from a heart of love for God's people. Before he prays, Uh, for a heart of love in God's people, he prays from a heart of his love for God's people in verses 3 through 8. So uh, I found this very convicting, and I hope it convicts you as well so that I'm not alone in my misery. 
So let's do this. Um, how, what does it look like to pray from a heart of love for God's people? What comes out of Paul's heart? And, and what would God have come out of our hearts as we pray for one another and for the church in general? Uh, first, what should come out of our hearts, hopefully, is, a, is gratitude. Gratitude with joy. He says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy. He's overflowing with gratitude for these people. A joyful gratitude, not a begrudging gratitude. Yeah, thanks for them. But he, he's joyful. God, I, I thank you for these people. Um, and so my question for, for us is when, when you and I think about one another, does our love for one another cause us, to, first of all, to pray? That was my first conviction, is how often do I pray uh, for anybody besides myself, first of all? But how often do I pray for outside of my family? But how often do I pray for the people that I go to church with? Um, there are some that I probably pray for more than others, and you probably do too, but... Paul prays in all his prayers for them all, he says. And so my second question was, does my love for the people in my church cause me to overflow with gratitude and joy? Does, this, does Paul's thankfulness and joy for God's people, uh, is, is that mine? Am I really feeling that way. So first of all, gratitude comes out of a heart of love for God's people. Secondly, confidence. This great famous verse, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a reminder that God is in charge of the whole process of the life of a Christian uh, from our justification, saving us from sin and imputing God's, uh, Christ's righteousness to us, um, to sanctification, that process of becoming more and more like Jesus, of uh, becoming more and more holy, all the way to the end when it's all done, and Paul calls that glorification, when we will see Jesus as he is and we will be like him. Um, Paul prays with confidence that God, who began a good work in these people, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So, my question is, do you and I have this kind of confidence that God is at work in our brothers and sisters in Christ? And do I pray according to that confidence? Do I pray that God would continue to use all things in their lives for the good of making them more like Jesus? Well, yes, I do for some people, for the ones who don't grate on my nerves, right? You're looking at me like you don't have any Christian friends who grate on your nerves. Come on. What about the, what about the Christian brothers or sister that really, you're kind of like, I love them in Jesus' name, but <laughs> do I have to hang out with them? I'm just being real. It, it's true. Um, 
What about the Christian brother or sister with whom you strongly disagree about a particular issue? The Christians have very different views on things that Christians can have, this view and this view, but these views don't match. Do you have confidence that God is at work in them to make them more like Jesus? Do you think that he needs to work harder on them than he does you? Do you have confidence that God is bringing them to completion even now? And if you did have that kind of confidence for them, would it make you pray differently for those folks? So gratitude, what joy comes out of his heart, confidence comes out of his heart as he prays for them. Then the next word, fellowship. Um, It's not, in the text, it doesn't use the word fellowship in English, but uh, here it is in um, verse 5, we saw that he said, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Partnership. Uh, Some of you may remember that's the Greek word koinonia, but it's the word that we get fellowship from. So we as mountain fellowship, you might want to pay attention to this one right here. Uh, But in verse 7, he uses the word again. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers That's the same word. Partakers with me of grace. Um, So this word fellowship or partnership or partakers, um, Paul uses it six times in Philippians. and It includes the idea of working together for the advance of the gospel. And later in chapter 4, it's talking about working together Uh, in giving financial support for the mission. Um, In verse 7, where it's translated partakers, it's it's the idea of participating together in the grace of salvation. So listen to the language of fellowship from uh, verse 7 particularly. He says, I hold you in my heart. Do you feel that way about your brothers and sisters in Christ? I hold you in my heart. You are partakers with me of grace. You and I are partaking of God's grace together. We both need it. There's the heart there. And then he says, um, you're partakers with me in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So this kind of involves the head a little because this is talking about we need to We need to understand the gospel so that we can defend it, so that we can help, you know, this is what we might call apologetics, defense of the faith. But then he says that we have partnership, he says, in my imprisonment and uh, in your partnership in the gospel with me. And in chapter 4, verse 15, he says, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So they not only had their, they were not only in fellowship with their hearts and fellowship with their heads, but with their hands. There was actually some giving involved and some work with Paul on behalf of getting the gospel out and helping him while he was in prison. He's writing this letter from prison. So 
I would ask us, can we pray that by God's grace, this kind of language would describe mountain fellowship? That our church would continue to experience what it is to be a gospel-grounded community on a gospel-growing mission. That our hearts and our heads and our hands would be intertwined with one another because of the gospel and for the sake of the gospel. That's what's flowing out of Paul's heart when he thinks about and prays for these people. We should be praying this kind of fellowship for us, particularly because we call ourselves a fellowship. And then finally, listen to the affection that pours out of his heart. Verse 8, he says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I yearn for you. I, I long for you. I desire you. And this, this word affection is really... Um, it's also translated someplace as compassion. It literally means, the Greek word is, has to do with the bowels. I know that sounds weird. But it's, you know, you ever heard of having a gut feeling or uh, being moved? It's like something just moves you with compassion. You feel it on the inside. Uh, that's, that's the concept here. It's the same word that Matthew used to describe Jesus in Matthew 9 when it says, when Jesus looked out and he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. That's the word affection. He had affection for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I know that we all have this kind of affectionate longing in our relationships with some of the people in this church. But Paul said, I yearn for you all. So my question is, how can we be growing growing in our affection for people beyond the ones we already hold in our hearts dearly and tenderly? Um, wouldn't it be amazing if the whole congregation was characterized by this, I hold you in my heart. I hold you in my heart. There are some, some of you in, in the church who don't yet have this kind of relationship with someone else in the church. And, and so, you know, some of us are new. I, we're new, and I long for that kind of relationship with the members of this church. And if it takes us 20 years to get there, fine, let's do that. But... There are others in this body who may be new or maybe not as outgoing and maybe a little more introverted or maybe who, like me, have been burned by people in the church before. Have, maybe you've been burned by relationships with church people before and you're like, I don't want to hold any of them in my heart. I want to hold them at a distance. Let's pray that God would give us this kind of spirit uh, that says, I want to know you. I want to I be in relationship with you. I want to be in partnership with you because of the gospel and for the sake of the gospel. Um, so by this point, if you're like me, you're feeling pretty guilty that you don't pray like this for other people. <laughs> that you don't have this kind of love gushing out of your heart for even God's people, much less other people. What do you do with that guilt? 
Well, you confess it. You confess it as sin to God. You say, Jesus, I don't love your people with this kind of love. But then I want you to remember, Paul said that he loved them with the affection of Christ Jesus. Remember who we're talking about here. This is Paul. This is the guy who locked up and sentenced to death Christian people. This is Paul who persecuted God's people, who is now gushing with affection for God's people, and not just any of God's people, Gentile Christians. If there is anybody who the old Paul would hate, would not only be a Jewish Christian, but a Gentile who claimed that Jesus was his Messiah. And here he is gushing with affection for these people. What happened? Why? How did he get there? It was because, because Paul himself experienced firsthand the affection of Christ Jesus on that road to Damascus when he was on his way to do more killing and persecuting and locking up of Christians. Jesus stopped him in his tracks and had mercy and compassion on Paul and loved him with affection and changed him into a man who loved others with that same affection. That's what you and I need. We need, that's what we need. When we say, I just don't love people. I don't even love your people. Confess it to Jesus and remember that he's going to say to you, I know you don't. I know you don't. And I love you. And I died for that unwillingness you have to love people. I died for your bad attitude towards your brothers and sisters. I died for that. I love you. Jesus will show you his affection. And that affection will kindle affection in you for other sinners. And so, from that heart of love for God's people, we then must pray for a heart of love in God's people. Uh, Paul says in verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Uh, here's, here's the love that Paul is, is praying for quickly. He's praying for an abounding love. He's praying for an astute love. He's praying for an authentic love and an active love. Let me show you this. He's praying for an abounding love that, and a love that may abound more and more. Last week we looked at Ephesians 3. Uh, where Paul prayed that we would be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, that, that we would know its height and depth and length and breadth, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul was asking that we would know the limitless love, the boundless love of Jesus uh, that abounds and abounds and abounds toward us. And so now he's praying that our love back to God and out to others, would also be limitless and abound more and more and more and more. But that's just how it works. This is what the New Testament says, how it works. Galatians 5, 6 says that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. As I, by faith, rest in the superabounding love of Jesus for me, then I will overflow with love for God and other people. That's just the way it works. 1 John 4, 19. We love 
because He first loved us. So Paul, in Ephesians 3, is praying that we would be rooted by faith in God's love so that we can overflow with love back to God and out to others. That's how faith and love work together. So he's praying for an abounding love. He's praying for an astute love. And I want to spend a couple more minutes on this because Paul pays a lot of attention. This is, I say astute because it starts with A, but um, it's a thinking love. It's a wise, discerning love. He says uh, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Um, And this sounds just like what Paul said in Ephesians 1 where he prayed for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of, of him. Sounds like what he prayed in Colossians 1. When he, said, when he asked that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Um, Paul is, is very interested that we have understanding. Um, and I think what he's trying to get at here is that it's a love that has definition. It's not just this mamby-pamby, gushy, mushy, general, abstract love out there. But it, it's a love that, that's defined. It's a love that's defined particularly by Scripture. Uh, and that we need to have knowledge, a knowledgeable love. Um, we don't know how to love. And so God's Word teaches us how to love. We need a love that is astute, that's wise, that's perceptive. It's a love that is informed by the narrative of Scripture, by the story of Jesus and not by the story or the narrative that the world wants us to believe. Let me give you a couple of examples. Tim Keller recently mentioned that there are a bunch of cultural narratives out there, but he mentioned three of them. One of the cultural narratives or stories goes like this. You've got to be true to yourself. You do you. You've heard that, have you not? It's everywhere. You've got to be true to yourself. You do you. Um, But biblical love sees through that lie and says, no, I love you. Be true to what God says about you. You have dignity. You were created in His image. But you also have depravity. You're a fallen sinner. Jesus came to save sinners and to turn them into saints. Be true to Christ in you, the hope of glory. Biblical, you know, our culture says if you love someone, tell them to be true to themselves. The Bible says if you love someone, teach them how to be true to what God says about who they are and what they are in Christ, what they can be in Christ. Here's another cultural narrative. In the end, you've got to do what makes you happy. In the end, you've got to do what makes you happy. And if there's a loving God... He would want you to be happy. And so he'll help you to do what makes you happy. Biblical love says this. You've got to find your ultimate happiness in God and what makes him happy and what he says makes you happy. It's what you were made for. You were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There is a loving God. 
And he does want you to be happy, but with a kind of happiness that will truly blow your mind and satisfy your heart. So when we pray for our children and we pray that they would be happy, we need to pray with an astute, for an astute love so that they would understand um, that being happy is something that God defines. We need to love them well in, in the way we encourage them to seek their happiness. Third cultural narrative, Keller says that our culture teaches, nobody has the right to tell anyone else what is right or wrong for them. And you've heard people say, well, well, that's your truth, or, or this is my truth. What's your truth? You, you live your truth. Nobody has the right to tell anyone else what is right or wrong for them. But, but if you know God's story, you know that that's the exact lie that the serpent told Adam and Eve. That God doesn't have the right to tell you what's right or wrong. But biblical love says to people, only God has the right to tell us what's right and wrong. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And if you know Jesus, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. True freedom comes not from following our feelings or bending Scripture to match our desires, but from orienting our feelings to Scripture. That was uh, said by Sean McDowell. So, when we pray that people would abound in love, let's pray that they would abound in a love that's wise and perceptive, of love that is defined by Scripture. Thirdly, we need to pray for an authentic love. Verse 10, and praying that we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Um, basically, it's, it's, it's a love that will stand at the last day, that Jesus will see on the last day and say, that's authentic. It's good. It's pure and blameless. It, basically here, Paul is praying for the result of what he said in verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of, of Jesus Christ. He's praying that at the end of the day, the day, capital D, that the work would be complete and that they would have a pure and blameless love um, that stands the test on the day of Christ. And finally, pray for an active love. Verse 11, he prays that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Righteousness. Big Bible word, big Christian word that we throw around a lot. What does it mean? To be righteous is to be actively conformed to God's law. Jesus said God's law, the Ten Commandments, could be summed up in two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And later, he said to them, a new commandment I give, you, give to you, love one another as I have loved you. Um, righteousness is loving God and loving others. Um, and so this filled with the fruit of righteousness is to be producing this love for God and this love for people that's abundant and growing. Um, the root of this fruit is Jesus Christ. As we heard from John 15 earlier, um, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, 
neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In order to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, you need to be filled and rooted, filled with and rooted in Jesus. We love because he first loved us. And then the fruit um, is, is a living love that gives God glory. Jesus said in John 15, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so be, uh, prove to be my disciples. The key here is that this abounding and astute and authentic and active love comes through Jesus Christ, Paul says. In order for the fruit of that kind of love to be produced in your life and in the life of this church, you and I have to be rooted in the love of Jesus Christ, not in some nebulous, abstract love, but the love of God that is defined by the gospel, the love of God that sent his son to live the life we should have lived but wouldn't, and to die the death that we should have died to pay for our sin but couldn't. And so I want to ask you this morning, Will you trust that limitless love that God has for you? Um, will you pray for that kind of love for one another, for me, for this church? Um, let these prayers of Paul shape your prayers for one another. 